Hello everyone, welcome to the FinTech Show from CityWire. This is the first time I'm actually calling it that as it was formerly Ian's Tech Travels. I'm still Ian Horn, however, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by Kate Bone, a FinTech innovation evangelist and partnership builder. Now, Kate has extensive experience working with FinTech Accelerator and Incubator programs, uh, most notably with Lloyds Banking Group, and she's also a champion of diversity, working as a mentor for women, uh, women of FinTech and women in payments, and she's also a co-founder of Technic women in leadership so Kate it's fantastic to have us uh, with you well have, have you with us today sorry on the fintech show uh, and I realize I've, I've kind of done an introduction for you um, so I suppose I ask how are you today and, and and what's on your mind at the moment what's what's going on at the moment Kate um, thank you, Ian. It's delightful to be here and, and hello to all your listeners. I love that you're rebranding staying current so I love your, also your introduction is absolutely perfect. I am an accidental techie at best, uh, definitely not my original career choice, but certainly one I've thrived in in the last 20 years. So so that's that's been terrific. And the description you gave is absolutely right. I don't speak binary, but I definitely am able to join the dots between tech capability and problem solving that the business are trying to deliver on. In terms of what's on my mind at the moment, I think a lot of it's been around um, accessibility. We obviously had Mental Health Awareness Month. We're now in the middle of Pride. It's all about the sort of not necessarily the fringes of society, but all those people who are other in the society and how we are catering for them. And to a large extent, the moral imperative that we have to make sure that the consumers that we are engaged with are catered for. That whole thing about... If you built a house, you wouldn't put the stairs on afterwards. And therefore, when you're building apps, when you're building fintech services, you need to make sure that although some of the audience that you're building for may be in the minority, you're building it in at the core. You're not bolting it on after the fact, because that's always going to be a slightly dodgy fix. It may be a good workaround in the short, in the short term or even the long term. But however, if we can really make sure that some of those accessibility and inclusion discussions are happening at the beginning that would really be the optimal way forward and I think things like the Khalifa report which came out earlier this year are one of the things that are going to help us move the needle quite significantly on that. Mm -hmm. and, and Kate I find some of what you say quite relatable um, from a personal level the, the fintech angle I, I certainly am not someone that can build technology but I, I also found myself in, in this kind of part of the market and finding it really, really fascinating. Uh, secondly, I am someone who would probably put the stairs in after I'd built a house, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's probably a separate issue for a separate day. But um, look, um, the, the plan for today, and I, and I love the point you make as well there, of, of course, about building things with with inclusion and accessibility at the core before you've you know done anything else. Um, and that is, of course, what we're looking to talk about today. We're looking at financial uh, advice and investing and in how we can improve accessibility to it. Um, and then that's, you know, that's physical and mental uh, disabilities and issues or people facing language and communication barriers. There's quite a lot of different stuff that kind of factors in here, isn't there? And, uh, you know, I also want to chat with you about your work in fintech accelerators and incubators. So we've got quite a lot to tackle. Um, let's set the scene for the first one, of course. In 2018, uh, for some, some context here, we polled readers of, our, of New Model Advisor, which is our, our financial advice magazine, and we found 70% of readers... Uh, said they had at least one client who was physically or mentally disabled. And we repeated that poll uh, in 2019, a year later, and it changed to 80%. Now, 
I, I found that fascinating because for, for 20% of financial advisors to not have a single disabled client, uh, when they have client banks of usually about 120, 130 people, um, just seems slightly wrong. I mean, so I, I did some, some digging here. Uh, and the Family Resources Survey from 2019 to 2020 shows there are 14.1 million disabled people in the UK. Uh, and that's, you know, people who report as being disabled, 19% of the working population and 46% of pension age adults. And and the pension thing's fascinating here because that's the cohort most of our advisor listeners work with. Uh, you know, so 46% of these people are disabled. I'm wondering how 20% of client books don't have a single disabled person on them. And it seems so improbable that this is a, a mathematical quirk. It, it can't be. So we've got a problem here. So Kate, this is where you're coming in. This is where you're going to help me out. Um, what are the easiest ways that people can make financial services, you know, financial advice and wealth management more accessible to people with disabilities? Because clearly there is there's a situation here. Absolutely. And I think some of that's down to general myths around disabled people. And if we, as you mentioned, take disability to be geography, language, communication, mental health, physical ability, et cetera, et cetera, all of those pieces. I think there are, there are a number of myths and uh, there's a group called Essential Accessibility that calls some of these out. Some of them are that people already have their banking needs met. Well, do you know what? They don't. There's, a, there's an amazing company called Signly that incorporates sign language, video sign language into pages of written text that allows deaf people and hard of hearing people to have both options so they can really get to grips with some of the complexity of language or nuances within whatever policy or document they're trying to deliver in. There are so many people that really don't have their needs met. If a deaf person has accessibility tools that they standardly use or a blind person has standard accessibility tools that their laptop or their phone maybe has incorporated into it, there aren't that many apps or that many financial services applications that are actually compatible with those pieces. So, so that's definitely a myth that's out there that I think needs a lot of busting. But also, I think in the past, maybe banks felt that there was no obligation to improve web accessibility. It's kind of like it, it's not in our remit. We do financial services. That's definitely changing. And there's a whole host of companies, including Lloyds Banking Group, Barclays, HSBC, etc., who have signed up to a, a, a sort of a directive that says that they're going to try and make it better and more accessible in terms of their own piece. Mm. Then there's all the myths around, you know, dis disabled people don't need to do wealth management because they don't have wealth. Now, it is generally considered that if you have a disability, you're potentially having less access to education or less access to things, as you mentioned less less ability to be employed through all the biases and things that are out there but actually you you may be one of the 46 percent i think of retired people that put themselves in that disabled category maybe it's through the geography they live in and they can't get to a branch maybe their legs don't work as well as they used to there are any number of things of course they need wealth management advice so there are all those things as well and then you know, the online piece lots of people go well we're online so there isn't a barrier well again you know yes and disabled people may have their own workarounds but that's not really an excuse either mm -hmm. and also fundamentally I think bank customers with disabilities don't necessarily want the exact same services as everybody else they may need something else they may need something that's designed 
say, financing programmes for adaptive equipment or assistive technology or vehicle loans that cover the adaption of a vehicle for them, their own accessibility modifications or a banking coordinator who's specifically knowledgeable about disability-friendly services, those kind of nuanced offerings and products that your everyday man or woman in the street wouldn't even cross their mind as something to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and there's, there's lots you pick up on there. I think a lot of this speaks to the original point that you made about you know things being built from the start to, in, to include people. I suppose another question I've got is... You know, how is technology really having an impact in this area? I mean, you mentioned web accessibility, which I think is obviously a, a great starting point. But are there any kind of new apps or tools that have come out recently or even in the last five or ten years to, to help people with, with disabilities, be they physical or, or mental, to receive investment advice and financial planning? I think it's still very much an emerging space. Um, CityWire published an article in 2018 reflecting that... 68% of IFA firms were advising disabled clients, but there was still a significant gap in as much that people in vulnerable circumstances, whether that was mental health disabilities, terminal illness, whatever that might be, again, coming back to that specialty product or even the products existing. There are other entities like um, Dush, Dosh, dot org so delta oscar sierra hotel dot org who really look at helping and supporting those with a learning disability to manage their money as well as sort of um financial advocacy and, and self-directed support budgets so there are a, there are a number of things that are kind of looking at this and age uk national numeracy, numeracy center for study of financial innovation the all-party parliamentary group, all of them have made recommendations to the FCA around the activities that they believe will support financial inclusion, financial accessibility for, the, for those different groups. So there's lots of people working on it, mm -hmm. but I think at the moment there's, there's less in terms of immediate apps or tools unless it's around specific things like supporting your credit rating, um, various sort of smaller pieces rather than the direct accessibility piece but I would be delighted to be put in my place on that one. <laughs> well it's funny you mentioned that 2018 article and also you know the, the chance of having an open forum to discuss things because uh, after that article was written Scope did actually offer to assist any financial advice firm that, that, that reached out to them and, and my understanding is that none did so if anyone anyone working in a financial advice or even a wealth business who who wants to to know how better to support uh, you know accessibility i'm sure there are people who will help if if you ask um so something different now language barriers because uh that's obviously not a disability but it's something that's going to cause you problems if you're trying to get financial help um, you know, firstly, some people are illiterate, some people don't speak proficient English, and so, some information on that. So in the 2011 census, it was found that 92.3% of people in England and Wales report English as their main language. Uh, in London, that figure drops to 77.9%. Um, and then there's an interesting, you know, second part of that, which is uh, in London, the number of people who identify as not being able to speak English well or even at all. So in the whole of London, that's 8.7%. Wow. Uh, the figure's between 2 and 3% elsewhere, but it's quite clear that while most of the country does speak English, uh, a significant, and this is England and Wales, of course, I'm, I'm missing Scotland and Northern Ireland, they weren't in the data, but um, a significant number doesn't speak English. Uh, and that's 
forgetting reading as well. So we're only talking about speaking mm-hmm. there. So do you think there's anything we can do about this? And is there any technology out there that, that really bridges the gap and helps people uh, to be aware of how they can seek advice in the UK if they don't speak English? So I think, again, it's a tricky one. One of the things that a bank that I've worked with found quite tricky is even delivering through Signly and the the video sign language of pages of static content. Really, the static content is relatively simple to supply in different mediums, different languages, etc., large text, whatever it might be. But actually, the dynamic stuff is quite difficult because... It's constantly changing. It's constantly up to date. If you're in a regulated industry, how do you make sure that the person that's reading that in a different language to the one that was originally authored in is on the correct version and that you haven't got the nuances of the translations slightly off piece? So there are all those those added nuances and complexities I think a lot of people are by default either relying on other people to translate it for them. So you, again, going back to deaf, um, children of deaf adults, coder people, you've got nine-year-olds translating a mortgage document for their parents in, in bank or whatever, because maybe if British Sign Language is your first language, the grammar and construct of written English is not going to be something you understand. And I, I think that translates for people using an international language as well. It is incredibly difficult. So aside from the financial services complexity itself, that extra layer of the language is very difficult. Now, Microsoft obviously are very good at delivering accessibility. Jenny Leigh Fleury is an amazing ambassador for all things accessibility, having become deaf as as a young adult. And also Apple phones, I believe, have the highest uptake of users with disabilities because, again, they they have some method of making sure that they are actually more seamless than others. There are some interesting apps, and I can't remember the, the name of it, where they're delivering Braille on a phone. I have no idea how you could possibly un- sort of deliver that. No, but um, again, yeah, just the, yeah. the direction of travel about how do you do that for, for different languages, both traditionally spoken or otherwise. That's absolutely fascinating, especially as you mentioned a higher uptake of users on, on iPhones purely because they're making them more accessible, which, which, which leads mm. me to a, you know, a cynical question. Obviously, accessibility is a decent thing to do. It's a good thing to do. But you know, is it is it actually that commercially worthwhile for people to do it? Are people missing out on a huge lucrative opportunity here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know I mentioned the moral imperative earlier. You know, why would you actively choose to exclude people that you know are within your consumer base? If you sat there and say, well, I know I've got deaf people, I know I've got foreign language people, but I'm I choose not to include them. I choose not to make it easy for them to do that. That seems like a weird stance to take. I get that there will be complexity and difficulty in doing that, but I think that's why areas such as the the Valuable 500 were created to make sure that those discussions are happening at board level and within leadership discussions. So, so yes, absolutely. I think the, the Global Economic economic forum did a report in in the last little while about the global disabled community it's about 1.3 billion people huge number of people and if you combine that with their friends and families they have a spending power of roughly eight trillion dollars 
Mm. You know, it's extraordinary. And yet at the time of that report, they reflected that there were more clothing lines being delivered aimed at dogs than there were for disabled people. And which is bonkers. Like if you let that sink in for a minute, it's completely bonkers. So there are clear gaps in the market with consumers in some circumstances simply unable to find products that meet their needs, whether directly linked to their specific health condition or indirectly linked to the impact around affordability, place, you know, where they reside, et cetera, et cetera, irrespective of whether they're eligible or not. There are there are just so many barriers to entry. You have some people who they get they get as soon as they tick a box that says disability, they will be taken down a channel um, that that again is it has more barriers to entry within it. So having to go and speak to somebody, you know, is that person going to be able to translate into their language? Are they going to be able to get to that place in person? You know, all those kind of things. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And as well, that's that's the size of the opportunity when we consider the market that we know about. Because, you know, we, one of our surveys a few years back, we asked people about their staff. And, and 10% of respondents said they didn't know if any of their staff members had a physical or mental disability. And, and, and that's so true, isn't it? You've only got to go online and see these stories about people who, who get out of a parking space and get yelled at because they appear to be walking normally when they're actually disabled or, you know, mental disability. How, how are you ever meant to know if someone's got one unless they disclose it? So um, yeah. you know, I guess there are some cases where you can tell, obviously, but some cases you won't be able to tell. Um, so it's amazing, really. There's probably an even bigger market than the one you've already explained, which is worth trillions. So that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we can't, and also from a, a traditional business perspective, I know obviously I sit in innovation, so therefore there's a little more speculation or or kind of appetite for risk involved. But if your starting perspective is what's my ROI, as opposed to I, it behoves me to include these audiences as part of my consumer base. If you can't measure it, you have absolutely no idea what your ROI is. If you don't know what percentage of your user base is, you know, you've, you've got that thing, you know, how do it, we come back to mobile phones? How does a blind person use a touchscreen? How does, um, how does a, um, someone who uses, say, we were talking about apps or tools that people use, you know, if they use a Dragon naturally speaking app to navigate the computer and the web that does everything on audio, um, but the drop down management on whatever site they're trying to use doesn't integrate with that. Again, how do they do that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and another question looking at the uh, yeah, the, the evolution of technology in finance. I mean, recently, there's been lots of headline coverage of you know, the GameStop fiasco and, and online trading apps. And, and that's not the only thing. There are, of course, uh, apps and technology that help people save for a mortgage or meet other financial goals and all the rest. Um, do you think, generally speaking, uh, you know, app-based investing and, and banking is a good thing for people with disabilities? And are there any, you know, are there any apps and tools in that space that we should know about? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the whole smartphone technology space is a is a complete game changer. Again, if we come back to the lower wealth end of the market, every everyone's more likely to have a mobile phone than maybe a laptop or a, a, a personal computer. And therefore, you know, if you've got sustainable targets and you're trying to meet your disabled customers, then yes, whether you know we mentioned Braille keyboards earlier or or more sophisticated apps and tools, there's absolutely a gap in in some countries just around the affordability of those those devices. 
But um, I believe that mobile first is absolutely essential. And, and while the migration to sort of universal financial inclusion is still underway across a, a number of sort of pillars, there is high penetration amongst the unbanked. There's increasing awareness of the availability of 4G, even 5G services for bandwidth to offer more sophisticated range of sort of mobile first financial services, way beyond just payments and remittances, take a picture of a check and, and it gets credited into your account, those kind of capabilities. You know, and, and that's going in the direction of credit lines, insurance coverage, those kind of pieces, which absolutely is going to bring the gap a little bit smaller. So I think if we look at some of the, again, larger institutions, China's got a technology called WeChat, and that's very much seen as a blueprint for what financial inclusion might look like in emerging economies. They have a they have a wealth of sort of super apps, if you like, and they they allow users to get updates from official government or company accounts, make payments, book a medical appointment, apply for a loan, take a taxi, top up your phone, all sorts of things. And then you've got Revolut who are expanding the way that they have convenient abilities to do cross-border payments. So again, bringing, bringing everyone together in a slightly sort of better sense of belonging. So I think it's, as I said before, it's still a work in progress, but we're definitely, it's on the agenda and people are beginning to make much more noise about it. Mm -hmm. and, and Kate, I now, having discussed something that's really important and is, to be honest, something we could discuss for two or three hours quite easily, I now, because I've got you on, on the fintech show, I want to talk to you about some of your, well, talk with you about some of your other work, which is your work with fintech incubators and accelerators. So before we get into this part, could you could you quickly talk us through your experience in this area? Sure, no problem. So I've been working in, in the fintech space for about 20 years, even before the word digital or fintech really existed. And there was this newfangled thing called the internet and e-commerce. And and there's an ever-growing wealth of capability out there. It's extraordinary. You know, whether it's creating an industry utility and joint venture companies with other banks or enabling smaller external fintech offerings to really get to grips and help larger institutions become a bit more nimble or explore known or emerging challenges or even hone their own offering. Maybe they're coming in from a different vertical and they're trying to see if the application that they have has a purpose or can solve a problem with financial services. Maybe they've come out of the telecoms vertical and they have something that deals with call centers, for example. You know, absolutely call centers are used by banks. Mm -hmm. So you can revolutionize these different industries, even though you've come out of a vertical. If you think about it, without a mobile phone, we'd never have mobile banking. We would not have got to the idea of a, a universal device that you carried in your pocket that allowed you to do all of these things without the mobile phone probably having gone there first. And I think open banking is, is a natural progression of that, that allows you to see all your financial sort of life in one space, irrespective of where you're holding it. Mm -hmm. And I love that whole interconnectivity thing and how you don't always know where the inspiration is going to come from. Uh, it kind of reminds me, though, of, um, you know, something I was told by someone else, which was, you know, fintech usually just solves really simple problems. Of course, if you try and explain it, it gets really long winded and full of acronyms and jargon and all the rest. But it, it's amazing how different things can come together to meet a basic need. And it's funny how we've learned from other other parts of the market, too. I think 
another question I've got for you here, which is, you know, what what actually makes it onto an accelerator or incubator scheme? Because I can imagine there's no shortage of good ideas or good technology, but you know, it's a competitive space. Not everyone gets seen. Not everyone gets funded. So, so what's the difference between something that actually gets onto one of them programs and what you know something that doesn't? Well, I think you know every day is an opportunity to be curious and to better understand how we serve our customers. And the application process for incubators and accelerators allows those of us who are part of the selection process. So if we take, for example, the Accenture FinTech Innovation Lab or the rainmaking space, the ability to see everybody who applied and start to score those people, it means that not only through the application has that capability, that that small firm or larger firm, had exposure to every single sponsor who's engaged in that program. And of course, we're allowed to have direct conversations with those capabilities if we think that there is benefit to be had on both sides and just crack on with something outside of the incubator or accelerator itself. But then once you're onto it, the, the dynamic is very much about the outcome that's being delivered and less about the technology. So we won't necessarily want people to stand up and give a blow-by-blow description, speaking binary, as I call it, around what the technology is and how many servers it's got or doesn't, and, you know, how it sits in the cloud, et cetera, et cetera. The biggest issue is what is the problem that you're solving? How are you making something better? How are you becoming the Uber to the taxi company or the Spotify to uh, the CD business? You know, what is it that you are doing that is going to radically change or even incrementally change something to the benefit of the end users? And the end users could be in a banking infrastructure perspective. It could be making us more compliant. It could be delivering less risk. It it could be transferring us all to the cloud in in a moment. It could be something that's based on a more uh, customer perspective and enabling something to be more transparent, faster, less steps, whatever whatever you've thought of. So it's very much around what, what problem is the capability solving. And the next one is very much in terms of the, the architects of that capability. Are they willing to listen? Are they willing to learn to the various mentors and the corporate sponsors who are in there to help them deliver an amazing outcome. It's not in anybody's interest to squidge these companies and make them into sort of an extension of your IT department. The idea is to really allow these companies to thrive. So the more that they throw themselves into it, sort of full throttle, the more they embrace and are willing to be curious about what people are saying and why they're saying it and really understand it rather than have a slightly allergic reaction to it because perhaps that's maybe not a direction of travel that they had originally thought they wanted to go in. Everyone on that program is looking to make the entity more profitable, greater investment runway and more applicable to both customers and consumers generally. So I think those those are the areas that the people who either get on or then thrive once they're on it within the cohort need to think about. So it's, are you solving a problem and how willing are you willing to listen to input about your, your thing, your baby? Yeah. And Kate, when I kind of set up that question and said, 
you know, I've been told by someone else that fintech simply solves a simple problem. I have a, a creeping suspicion that I heard that from you on our briefing call, and, <laughs> and, and I've simply not credited you for that. So uh, my apologies, but I think that's great. I think what you've said there basically maps it out, doesn't it? If it, if it has a useful application, then it has a future, generally speaking. Yeah, and through the course of that accelerator or that incubator, what they may find is that you are solving a problem, but it's not a problem anyone's motivated to solve within the industry you're targeting it to. So again, it's it's almost like crowdsourcing. Here's a, here's a problem. Here's my potential solution. Hello, chaps. If you had a solution for this problem, would you want it? Maybe not. But maybe the the way in which you're going about solving that problem has an even better application if you just pivot it slightly. But that will require listening to the experts, listening to the mentors, and, and really being curious and understanding why they're saying that and what that potential outcome is for you. And then you can pivot or not, but but chances are they're telling you for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. And can I, final question here, Kate, to bring this full circle, because your initial point, which is one I've gone back to a few times because I liked it, which was, you know, we have to start at the beginning when we include accessibility, uh, even things like, you know, diversity and inclusion, it's the same thing, I, su- I, I suspect. Um so when it comes to these fintech accelerator programs and these startup companies that might become the fintech unicorns and might become the, the dominant players of the future, are you seeing much diversity in the backgrounds of people setting those up? Um, you know, are the, are the leaders of these companies generally from a, a diverse range of backgrounds? I think you and I know that the, the generally they are white and male, often slightly older, perversely, because they're coming out of the industry that already exists and they're aware of... A, a problem, uh, a pinch point, a pain point that needs to be resolved, but maybe their specific employer at that time isn't motivated yet or prioritizing that particular problem solution. So if you if you look at the more tra- traditional sort of diversity lenses, which would be gender, it's relatively easy to spot. People are relatively comfortable giving you a gender. I think it's a well-understood statistic that only 17% of fintech companies have female founders and women account for less than 30% of the overall workforce in the fintech space. So clearly there's a great deal to be done, uh, whether it's role modelling, mentors, hiring, fundamentally embracing that neurodiversity of different experiences, different backgrounds, different cultures. You know, even if you have a 50-50 gender split, if everybody went to the same university and studied the same thing or had the same cultural background, that's not diversity, that's just two different genders in a team. So you look at people like Nadia Edwards-Dashti, who is a co-founder of a tech recruitment firm called Harrington Star. She's looking to do away with the myth of the fact that female talent is hard to find. And she's got a thing called the 17% list. So if you want to hire just about any fintech capability, any tech capability, she has a cohort of extraordinary women ready to go and sort of point in your direction. So never use the excuse that you can't find them. You know, people sit there going, oh, but there are only five female spot traders in the entire industry and everybody wants to retain them. It's just like, sometimes you just need to look a little bit harder or have help to do that. And then you've got some amazing female talent. There's Caroline Hughes, who is a co-founder of a company called Lifeties that's helping people afford life goals. And enable them to do planning, but in a way that's very accessible and the language that she's using, she's based it on 
uh, an old 1970s board game called The Game of Life. So um, it's and it's extraordinary thing. And she's also looking herself having bumped into the female founding issues where very little investment goes to female founders again, and yet they're more profitable. It's perverse. She is also part of a female founder angel network. So also paying it back, which is amazing. Laurel Quinn um, co-founded with her daughter a company called Sustainably, which allows people to basically give charitable donations because obviously it's quite difficult as we all go cashless. That small change, that dropping it in the the person who's holding a, a change bucket in the, in the corner of the road or whatever, what she allows you to do, her, her capability just rounds up every transactional payment that you make by the odd penny and divert it to the charity of your choice. So that's amazing. Not only is it helping and giving back from a diversity perspective, but also female founder and also enabling that, that sort of that benefit to still be had. And then there's another lady who I just want to mention that says, you know, Dr. Rachel O'Connell, who is an extraordinary woman and shaping a lot of government policy around youth identification in, ter- in terms of minors online and offline safety. And one of the things that her capability enables banks to do is offer banking services to all young people, enabling their digital ID, their age verification in a very secure way. So whether you are a a person who is living in maybe sheltered accommodation or someone who has a guardian, so traditionally an application form would ask for a parent. But if your parents are divorced and have then have different names to you, or you're living in, in a social services structure whereby you, you kind of don't even have a formal guardian or, or step-parent or anything like that, she's really allowing people to come into that and, and enabling that financial inclusion right at the beginning of their journey. And I think a lot of the VC firms are also sort of saying, if you don't have a diverse board, if you don't have diversity, again, built in, hopefully not bolted on, then, you know, they're not going to invest in you. So it's definitely becoming a focus. And I have great hope for the future. Well, that's a surprisingly optimistic way to finish. So thank you, Kate. Um, It's been a real pleasure having you on the FinTech show. Um, Thanks again for joining um, and thanks everyone listening listening at home or wherever you happen to be in the office or whatever. Uh, I'll be back again in about two weeks with an interview with Tim Levine, uh, investor in fintech and CEO of Augmentum, uh, which was the first publicly traded fintech-focused VC in the UK. So don't miss out on that one as Tim's going to give some pointers on how to effectively invest in emerging tech disruptors. Anyway, time to wrap this one up. I look forward to having you with me for the next episode of The Fintech Show. Mm-hmm.